Are you conscious of your addiction? Refuse to be defined by it? Not satisfied with living your life on the surface? Are you drawn to deeper meaning and purpose? And believe that it's possible to grow through your addiction to experience true freedom? Well, welcome home. Share the journey from addiction to freedom with your host, Michael Gregory. So welcome again to another episode of Addiction to Freedom. And today I have just had a really interesting and uh, insightful conversation with Noah Levine. He's a, a long-time Buddhist teacher and also he runs addiction recovery programs. But he's not your usual kind of hippie spiritual teacher he's um he had he, he's come through you know from his own journey of addiction as a kind of a punk rocker he was you know in and out of you know jail with and, and heavy addiction so he shares his journey which is very powerful and, and where he's come to and his understanding of of addiction we discuss that we discuss what the solution to addiction and craving looks like so I really encourage you to give the time to engage in this this conversation, this episode. I think you'll find it very, very helpful. And with that, I will uh, allow you to enjoy the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Addiction to Freedom. And today, I have to say, I've been really looking forward to this conversation with Noah Levine. He is kind of, in a way, a radical Buddhist teacher, radical in the sense that he really brings a freshness to the teachings, in particular to the way that the teachings of the Buddha are really quite radical and revolutionary, and he kind of exemplifies that. And I guess that kind of presses some people's buttons too, but that just gives us all something to work with. So he's an author. He's written four books. They are uh, Dharma Punks, Against the Stream, Heart of the Revolution, and Refuge Recovery, and he's been really instrumental in founding some organisations that create a lot of benefit, in particular Refuge Recovery, which I think we'll be talking about a little, and Against the Stream, which is um, a Buddhist community in in LA and around the world. So without, uh, I guess we'll get to know a little bit more about Noah as as we go along, but um, with that, I'd just like to say welcome. Thanks, Michael. Happy to be here. Yeah, just mentioning to you before we turn the camera on that, but I'll just share with our listeners that I first became aware of your father through his book, Gradual Awakening, when I was maybe 20. I read that and it had a really profound impact on a, not just an intellectual level, on a kind of a deeper level. I really recognised some truth there. And yeah, and that's how I found you. I didn't know about you because I was actually searching him <laughs> to see if, he, if I could actually interview him somehow. But um, so you've actually grown up in, I guess, in your younger years in this whole environment. And I'd really love to get to hear more of your your story. But but before we do that, just so that everyone can get a sense of what your mission and purpose is, and I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your work and what you're doing at the moment. Thank you. I'm also a big fan of my father, Stephen Levine, uh, and that book in particular was my kind of early Bible guide guidebook against the stream or uh, gradual awakening. Uh, I have a copy over here that that I got in probably 1988, something like that, when I when I started my practice and uh, very dog-eared. <laughs> <laughs> So what I'm up to is I have two uh, nonprofit organizations. Uh, one is called Against the Stream, and that is my meditation center and my meditation retreats that are open to everyone, anyone who's interested to learn about Buddhism and Buddhism the way that I teach it, as you alluded to, as a revolutionary practice, as, a, as an act of rebellion against greed against hatred, against delusion, against the, the causes of suffering. And I've been um, doing that for uh, many years, about 20 years. About 10 years ago, I so many people in my community came to me and said, we want to 
use what you're doing as our addiction recovery process. We want to use right. Buddhism as, you know, for our, our recovery from addiction. And, you know, for a long time, I said, well, you know, you can study Buddhism like I have, you can practice it. But also, a lot of the Buddhist community is not going to understand what it's like to be an addict. And uh, maybe not give you the best advice. Also, a lot of the Buddhist communities aren't even practicing abstinence from drugs and alcohol. So, you know, you might even get misled into like, that's okay. We've seen that uh, happen. So I, I developed a, a Buddhist recovery program and tested it out in my communities in Los Angeles and then wrote the book. And that came out actually this last week was the seven year anniversary of the, the refuge recovery book and founded a nonprofit and started a system of peer led meetings where people don't need a meditation teacher. Here's the meditation instructions as a script that anyone in the room can read the script that says, you know, read this, pause, read this, pause, three minutes of silence, so that it can be a peer led meditation experience. So every refuge recovery meeting is a meditation based recovery from addiction meeting that utilizes the Buddha's Four Noble Truths Eightfold Path as the program of recovery, as the process of recovery. So that's I'm fully engaged in running both of those nonprofits and um, supporting the retreats, refuge recovery retreats, against the stream retreats, and this network of peer-led refuge meetings, which had been quite large, and been, there had been meetings in Australia and meetings in Europe and Thailand and all over North America. And, and then, you know, kind of post-pandemic, we're not sure where it's at because all of the meetings went away and went online. And on Zoom, we had maybe 70 meetings that made it to Zoom, which was enough because it was sort of every day there was lots of virtual meetings. And now we're in the process of going back to in person and finding that, how we do that, how we, how many online meetings we keep and how many in-person meetings re reappear. So it sounds like anyone anywhere in the world could connect and, and participate in the refuge recovery program. Yeah, absolutely. That's because of, you know, it's, it's one of the wonderful things about technology. I mean, we can have a conversation where I'm in Los Angeles, yes. you're in Australia. Are yes. you in Sydney? Two hours south of Sydney in a little coastal town. I kind of moved out of Sydney about nine years ago. So, yeah. It's so great that we have this uh, medium where we can communicate across the globe. And likewise, for recovery meetings uh, or meditation groups, you can like be live with your teachers or with your communities, even if you're on the other side of the planet, depending on the time difference, you know, kind of figuring it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it is absolutely amazing time that we live in. And I'm wondering, because when you were speaking there, I was just wondering what if there was a difference between the way the structure of your that program, the refuge recovery program, and, and the, it sounds kind of AA came to mind, the AA movement. Did you want to draw a distinction there, or for anyone that might be listening? Well, I'm a big fan of the twelve step model of peer to peer support, mutual aid societies, remove the priests, remove the teachers, remove the, and just, you know, one addict helping another, I'm a big fan, has really helped me a lot. The core difference, and there's a lot of similarities between refuge recovery and AA or 12-step programs. The core difference is the philosophical views of the 12 steps are theistic. It's all about a higher power. It's all about God, as you understand God, whatever your own concept of, of higher power God is. It's about human beings being powerless and not having the internal power to end addiction and only an external source can end addiction from the 12-step perspective. The refuge perspective, the, the Buddhist perspective, is that is actually much more humanist rather than theist. It's non-theistic humanist perspective that understands actually human beings have the power the potential, the ability to directly experience freedom from addiction through our own actions, our own efforts, and not just a grace or a blessing or a divine intervention. That actually we can train our minds 
and practice renunciation and and walk a path, Buddhist middle path, that will lead to the end of not only the suffering of addiction, but all kinds of suffering. And so theistic versus non-theistic is a big piece. Yes. See, my... I really hear what you're saying there in, in that interpretation of, let's say, a Christian-based approach where God is a separate power and that humans are in kind of never going to be able, the weak and never going to be able to, without this divine graceful connection, be able to reach their potential, I guess, but that potential being quite limited, whereas there are other versions or interpretations of a relationship with a with divine power that are do kind of assume an, an inherent oneness and that's the way I interpret what Jesus is on about so yeah and I do hear what you're saying that the, the the AA movement along with conventional Christianity can come from that point of view but yeah missing the opportunity of what the Buddhist approach is you know being that we we are already one just not realizing it and therefore self-limiting. But the rest, of this, the rest of the structure, I'm just kind of, uh, you know, I grew up in recovery and 12-step and was like, oh, yeah, I, I love this model. I just don't like the philosophy. Buddhism makes more sense to me philosophically. It's given me more of a direct experience, practical, tangible experience. And so I wanted to create a Buddhist model that's based on the 12-step infrastructure but not philosophy. Yeah. And the, the power of community, and like you said, you know, person-to-person, relational, I think there's there's something so powerful in that that creates benefit and helps. Yeah. So just from your the small, the little bit I know about your background, you know, even though you had your father was, a, let's say, quite a famous you know, spiritual teacher in the West, uh, it sounds like you kind of rebelled against that at some point and um, went your own way before something happened and you're back in your own flavour. And I'm really curious as to about if you, if, if you could share some of that journey with us, like what happened there? You know, my, when I, my, my parents split up when I was about two years old and you know, my father was in, very much engaged in meditation practice and working with death and dying and hospice and... You know, I grew up around Ram Dass and Jack Cornfield and, and, you know, these sort of spiritual events and retreats and blessing ceremonies and everything. It was all modeled for me. And also I was taught, you know, I, I born into a family that believed in reincarnation and that these bodies die, but that that's not the end of our existence or not, not, we're not really these bodies was, you know, and I had enough suffering and some traumatic experiences that by the time I was five years old, I was suicidal and I wanted to start over. And I was told death is not the end. You get to start over. And so I started contemplating killing myself by the time I was five, thinking like I could just get out. My parents aren't really paying attention. Dad's too busy out teaching meditation. My mom was an addict. And I obviously haven't killed myself. Not, not yet. <laughs> and but I started getting high at like seven years old. I started smoking my parents' weed and drinking their booze and eating their acid and their mushrooms. And by the time I was in my early teens, I was doing cocaine and heroin and drinking alcoholically and committing crimes and left home and was on the streets. You know, and dad had a Interesting, you know, later when I got sober, at one point I said to my dad, I said, what the hell were you thinking? Like I got, uh, they let me get emancipated when I was 15 and leave home. And I was like, what were you thinking? Like you knew I was strung out. I had been arrested like a bunch of times already. And he said, you know, my, my thought was you were leaving anyways. I could see it in your eyes. <laughs> and either you could leave with my blessing and we could have a continued connection. Or if I tried to stop you, if I tried to send you to rehab, you would have ran, we would have lost our connection. And he said, so I said, pretty big gamble, you know, to just be like, okay, go for it. 
so many of my friends died, ended up in prison, ended up killing people. Like, you know, it was a pretty heavy teenage drug addict scene in the early 80s that I was in. And, you know, long story, but what I ended up locked up over and over in juvenile hall. And at the end, I, you know, I don't know if juvenile hall is the right, you know, same thing, the youth, youth jails, youth prisons. And at some point I realized, well, I'm a drug addict. I'm smoking crack. I'm shooting heroin. I'm drinking every morning, you know, and I, but I don't know how to stop. And even with some sort of like trying to stop of like, well, I'll just smoke pot. I won't smoke crack. I'll just, you know, all of those things that we try to do when we're addicted uh, to try to manage it. But I ended up locked up the last time and having many arrests and and feeling that underlying suicidal ideation that I'd always had and, and, and having a long suspended prison sentence and thinking like, oh, I just got another felony after a suspended felony and like, I'm going to spend my life in prison. And I had a suicide attempt at 17 years old, uh, kind of a pseudo suicide attempt, one of those kind of cry for help in the jail and uh, woke up in a padded cell in an observation room, suicide watch. And for the first time that I can consciously remember, rather than blaming everyone else for my situation, I took some responsibility. I was like, oh, I'm, it's not just the cops, society, the system, my hippie parents, you know, all of the usual blame, blame, blame. I was like, I'm the, nobody's forcing me to shoot dope and commit crimes. I'm doing this. I'm choosing this. So that was a moment of realization right there. That was a huge, it was simple. It wasn't like a big bright light. It was just a yeah. perspective shift realization mm, mm. that gave me both a flood of shame. Mm. So much easier when you're a victim and you're blaming everyone else to stay ahead of the pain and the shame. Yes. But when I took some responsibility, I was like, oh, shit. I did this to myself. And with that willingness came, uh, you know, some inkling of, well, if I got myself in this situation, maybe I'm not stuck. Maybe even if I have to do a few years locked up, I can change. And the timing being right, my father on a telephone call said, why don't you try meditation? And he could hear that I was some willingness. So it was present that hadn't been there before. And, and he gave me simple mindfulness, Buddhist mindfulness of breath instructions. And I sat in my cell and I started meditating and I had a very simple, but also powerful direct experience that I didn't know before that, that I could choose to pay attention to my breath and ignore my mind. And almost all of my suffering was in my mind. All of the shame about the past, all of the almost all of the cravings. Now, not all in my mind, because also I'm addicted. <laughs> so my body is detoxing and craving and sweating and, you know, but paying attention to the breath was a relief for that half a moment of disengaging from the mind, coming back to the body. And it was a revelation. I didn't know I could choose to ignore my mind. I'd been obeying my mind my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> my mind said, you know, lie, cheat, and steal, and, and, you know, get high. That's what my mind told me to do. And I was like, yes, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so meditation felt like this act of rebellion of like, nope, I'm not going to obey it anymore. I'm going to rebel against what my mind is telling me to do. And I'm going to just sit here and breathe. And as we sit here and breathe, as I sat there and I saw, oh, wow, those thoughts come and go. Those cravings arise and pass. Those fears are impermanent. Every, you know, this kind of insight into it's always, it's all changing. And however powerful that emotion is in the moment, it will dissipate all by itself. So that was the beginning shift for me. And then I had, and I was locked up for a few months. I ended up not having to do years. I got kind of lucky through a legal process. And, and I would meditate in the, those first couple of years. I would meditate 
but I was so embarrassed to meditate, Michael. It was not cool in my uh, culture. It was not cool in my generation. I was a punk rock street tough guy. You know, I'm not spiritual. Spiritual is for hippies. It's for religious people. It's it's not for us. You know? <laughs> so I didn't have any mirroring in my subculture of that that this was a thing to do. Right. I also started going to 12 step and in 12 step, I met some people that I could relate to that were re- trying to recover, that were recovering. But as we said before, the philosophy, they're telling me to pray to God. I don't believe in God. They're telling me to that I'm powerless, that only a higher power is going to remove these cravings from me. The philosophy is not making sense to me, but the people are cool. And they're, right. I even knew some of the people from the streets that had gotten into recovery. I started going to meditation retreats when I was about 19. I went to Jack Cornfield meditation, silent Buddhist meditation retreat. My, I asked my dad, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in. What do I do? I'm sober. I'm in. And for those first couple of years, I still had that delusion that there might be an external refuge, an external solution. If I could get money, the car, the girlfriend, the record collection, you know, that stuff would fix and so then I found myself a couple of years sober with the stuff, with all of the same fears and misery and ego identification that was causing all my suffering. And that's when I said, hey, dad, what? okay, what? I'm meditating a little bit. What do I do next? He said, go to a retreat. I went to a retreat with Cornfield and I was like, oh, wow, like this is really hard, but this is my only hope. For me, I felt like this makes sense. It's practical. It's I can experience the impermanent nature when I just sit with it. I can see, starting to see that my mind was not myself, not who I am. Right. So this is like just reflecting on what you've said there. You you, you had some, when you're really young, you know, like five or six, you had some real suffering and you tried to solve that by getting high and hanging out with people who accepted you, that created more suffering. And then tried the objects, you know, getting stuff around you, as if changing your environment, as if that's going to create happiness and you'd found that that didn't work. But you had the, this, you know, through some insight that you were creating this suffering for yourself then started to experience, just sat still and started to experience, your awareness started to experience the truth of some of these layers of how this suffering was was being created. And you were still, sounds like you were still quite young, like under 20. I mean, even though you could say people, some people might label and judge that as good and bad, good and bad, but I just see the whole thing as fast track, <laughs> you know, fast track to the real, a real solution, which is starting to understand the truth of how your awareness, like you just said then, that you can observe your so-called self. So starting to become aware of, well, what is that that's observing myself and ask those questions under 20. Yeah. And then, you know, and then this huge shift. Of, and I think this is, I attribute a lot of my, some of it's just being a young, passionate person, but being an addict, you give me anything that gives me a little bit of relief. I'm going to do it over and over and over and over. And I went to the three-day retreat, and then I went to a five-day retreat, and then I went to a 10-day retreat, and then I did 10 10-day retreats, and then I did a 30-day retreat, and then I did a 90-day retreat, and I was just like, this is the solution. How do I mainline it? (laughs) (laughs) So this was like your addiction to freedom. (laughs) Exactly. Addiction to freedom. And just, you know, in my 20s, I was in balance, you know, I was celibate. I took a vow of celibacy. I was vegan, sugar-free, caffeine-free, you know, kind of the, and also like a bit of an ego trip around enlightenment and that confusion around like, I am going, I, (laughs) (laughs) enlightened and and even a competitiveness with it. And I'm going to get enlightened before you are, (laughs) 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 you know, that sort of 20 something the, yeah. ignorance and and but but passion yes 
you know, and also uh, it also created some conflicts over the years between my father and I because I became Theravadan Buddhist. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, you're woo-woo, guru, blah, you know. I became like, I, I, I'm more spiritual than you. Yeah, I'm, the, <laughs> you I'm still, the real deal. <laughs> you still believe in magic. <laughs> and eventually that mellowed some over the years. But, you know, any often us converts, right? Like we kind of yeah. fall yeah. on into that kind of convert. But it helped so much that I heard early on that the Buddha had said, this is a path that leads against the stream. Because I fancied myself a rebel and had been rebelling against what I saw as mainstream ignorance. And then Buddhism being presented as going against greed and hatred and delusion the, is the path of awakening. I was like, okay, this is, I'm in, this is what I want to do. I've been trying to find the right thing to rebel against my whole life. And it's not just society's ignorance. It's my own ignorance. Yeah. And, um, you know, and after a few years, my teachers and Stephen and Cornfield, and I met a Buddhist monk named Ajahn Amaro, who, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Ajahn Amaro. He's a English monk in the lineage of Ajahn Chah. Are you talking him. about you're talking about um Ajahn Brahm? Ajahn he's one of Ajahn Brahm's colleagues, you know, in that same uh -huh. same lineage. Anyways, I met him early on my second retreat and he's this bald Western monk and really inspired me in all of the Ajahn Chah stories and this monasticism and celibacy really inspired me. And they started to encourage me to teach maybe about 10 years into my practice in my late 20s, early, early 30s. So I did all the trainings. I did the mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher training with Kabat-Zinn and a teacher named Bob Stahl. And I started working at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center and, and uh, Jack Cornfield's place in, in California. And, and Cornfield said, I want to train you, you know, uh, and empower you as a Dharma teacher. And at the time, I was like already doing stuff, and I was working at San Quentin, teaching meditation in the prison, and I was working for a, a uh, harm reduction coalition, doing outreach to addicts on the streets, and uh, HIV/AIDS education, and and I and I said, okay, well, I'll, I'm a high school, I'm a junior high school dropout. I didn't have much of an education, but when I got sober, I went back to school, and I got my bachelor's and I went and got my master's degree in psychology. And, and then, you know, it all became sort of organically through grad school. I decided, oh, I'm going to write my memoir. <laughs> I'm 30 years old. I'm going to write my memoir <laughs> <laughs> about my addiction, recovery, Buddhist path. And yes. so that first book, Dharma Punks, which kind of started a, started a thing. It started a movement where a whole bunch of people were like, we relate to this. And finally, somebody who's translating Buddhism for Generation X in a way that we can understand it, that we don't get it as much from the baby boomer generation. And then just kind of organically, then against the stream and the nonprofits and then refuge recovery. And here we are 33 years later, and I'm still very actively engaged in recovery and in my own meditation practice and my relationship with Ajahn Amaro. And I'm not quite as convinced that I'm going to get enlightened anytime soon, but I've just seen such a radical shift in how I relate to my own mind and body and desires and aversions and relationships and, and this whole world, you know, like where the the suffering in my life has so dramatically decreased that I have total confidence in what I will call the Dharma, right? You know, the kind of the Buddha's Dharma, the awakened uh, truth, and and how practical it is when we train our mind to see clearly. And what's it seeing clearly? Just itself. <laughs> 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 Yes. So I really I, I really want to actually ask 
go into that, you know, what what that is that we, are, what freedom is. But before that, I'd really, I'd love to know what you, if you have a definition of addiction. The repetitive process of habitually satisfying cravings to avoid change or control the seemingly unbearable conditions of the present moment. Continuing, this process of craving and indulgence provides short-term relief, but causes long-term harm. It is almost always a source of suffering for both the addict and those who care about the addict. Yes. So a process of satisfying cravings to avoid whatever discomfort is in the present. So how do you, how do you see cravings, the generation of cravings? If it's a process of satisfying cravings and that's just an endless cycle, so how do you understand the generation of cravings? Twofold. One is, right, this is the Buddha's second noble truth, repetitive craving is normal, is experienced by all sentient beings, and it is the cause of all of our unhappiness. First noble truth, suffering. Second noble truth, the cause of suffering is repetitive craving. So the gener- you know, the generation of that, the Buddha didn't say that. He didn't say why, you know, and but what do I think? I think millions of years of evolutionary survival instinct biology (laughs) that we're just born into craving organism that wants pleasure and doesn't want pain and doesn't want the pleasure to be impermanent, but it is. So it's repetitively craving because no matter how high you get, it's not going to last. No matter how calm you get, it's not going to last. It's all going to be replaced by a repetitive cycle of more, please. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. And and, and usually that's that's satisfying that craving is really trying to change something with like adding, change something that's not here or get rid of something that is here. So this constant endless, you know, like rat on a wheel of trying to, get or get rid of, and the busyness of that is in a way suffering in itself. Well, it's also why the definition is the habitual satisfying of the cravings, not the cravings themselves. Addiction isn't that we have cravings, it's that we are obeying them. Everyone has cravings. But also, I do believe that those of us who become addicted to substances or behaviors, food, sex, spending, gambling, there's something else going on in us that makes the normal human condition of craving more intense. Now, some would say it always has its roots in some sort of trauma in our, in our life, whether that's a big traumatic experience or a developmental attachment, interruption with our caregivers, but that something, because not everyone is an alcoholic. There's lots of people, everyone has craving, but there's lots of people that can have a drink or two occasionally and not drink to excess to the point of dependence. But there's something going on in the addict that is increasing that need for control, that need for avoidance. That rat on the wheel is fueled differently in addicts, I believe, than non-addicts. Now, non-addicts have the same kind of suffering, you know, still have the attachment to pleasure and the aversion to pain, but not to the point where we're putting needles in our arms to avoid, you know, or drinking, you know, ourselves to oblivion. So there is some distinction, which I don't feel comfortable saying it's always trauma 100% of the time. But it does seem to be true for most of us. Right. Yeah. That trauma somehow kicks off an adaptation, perhaps, that leads to, you know, seeking more intense satisfaction of cravings. What we do in refuge is the first noble truth, which we say addiction is suffering. We do a almost a 30 question 
investigation, inventory, first truth of suffering inventory to look at all of the ways that uh, we have suffered and, you know, look at where is there trauma, where has there been abuse, where has there been neglect, where has there been, you know, resentments, where has there been fears, what has fueled this addiction? And then in the second truth, the repetitive craving, we do a, a further, a deeper analysis. There's, I think, 62 inventory questions in refuge recovery as part of the first two truths to help the individual really identify the patterns of suffering, the patterns of craving, the root causes and conditions that led to the intensified craving that we experience, and to start the process of letting go and forgiving and healing. Mm, that sounds really helpful. Yeah. Because it would really bring awareness to what perhaps you know what's on what's going on in when that those cravings and and the addictive behavior is occurring so what what would you say then is the solution to this renunciation abstinence based practice stop <laughs> 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 so, a lot stop of people would call that what, a, lot of, a lot of people would say that stopping is the end goal and and they're having trouble even with that and that that's the nature of the addiction it prevents them from actually making any headway so but we stop through you know so yes stop of abstinence through participation in community a whole bunch of like-minded people we have our meetings we have our mentors we have the connections with other people who have done what we're trying to do if I uh-huh. can get sober, you can get sober. Right. So there's trust and belief. Mindfulness practice so that it's not so much faith, and, and but it's when I bring, just as I did in Juvenile Hall in 1988, the beginning of refuge recovery, start your mindfulness practice, present time awareness, here, now, breath, body, guided meditations daily. And in addition to the wisdom that will come from mindfulness and the intervention with craving, where the more you're disconnecting from your mind, coming back to your breath, that's a intervention with the addictive thought patterns. And then also starting forgiveness practice and compassion practice as a trauma resolution. I forgive myself. I forgive those who hurt me. Even if I don't mean it yet, I'm going to start saying it to create those neuro pathways of meeting the pain of the past with compassion. Yes. Yeah, I can really see how the, so I was going to come to that, the power of love as a real transformative healing, internal and external power experience and forgiveness being a necessary opening into being able to experience love because it because if we're not able to kind of forgive then we're really kind of locking in that we're still holding on to resentment anger whatever that judgment blame is and the forgiveness kind of releases that doesn't it 100 percent. eventually i like to do the forgiveness meditation by saying I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. I'm not a big fan of uh, affirmations that aren't in line with the reality of our experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a mental thing then otherwise, isn't it? Yeah. So that it's more aspirational. I'm trying to forgive you. (laughs) I'm trying to forgive myself. I'm willing. I'm opening the door. And eventually it's like, oh, wow, that, that actually worked. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I mean, one thing that I do with my clients is I, I get them to imagine what would it feel like right now if I actually forgave this person or myself or whatever? What would it actually feel like now? Imagine that right now. and when they're able to do that, when I'm able to do that, it literally brings the experience of forgiveness into the present and kind of fast track, takes that intellectual 
aspiration into an embodied state very quickly. Of course, that's not always able to be done that quickly, but yeah, it's amazing what what that can do. In my early years of trying to practice forgiveness and that question of what would I, what would it feel like, what would it be like to not have this resentment, this, and I can remember of like, oh, I, I would feel vulnerable. I would feel, <laughs> I would feel unsafe. I would feel yes. naked. Because yeah. I think my anger is protecting me. Yes. Even though it's destroying my life, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's protecting me. And so that, you know, to, to become willing to be vulnerable and open and took a, a while, you know, that courage to say, oh, what if I let go of this and am vulnerable and am willing to be hurt? And that's so radical. That's so like, oh, okay, this isn't about protecting myself and being comfortable. This is about being free. And freedom means learning to be with pain because pain obviously is unavoidable. But the more we develop compassion, the more I learn to care about my own pain and have some mercy towards my own pain, then it was safer and safer to forgive. Yeah. Yeah, and then, 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 then there's the, an opening to a recognition that that I, who am forgiving, what is that? So maybe you could speak about that. I like to speak about it in the like, you know, first thing I started to realize in my own practice was, okay, everything's impermanent. And because everything's impermanent and my thoughts are arising and passing and my sensations are coming and going and the emotions, even the strong emotions that have this message of like, I'm going to stay forever. <laughs> it's never true. They arise and they pass. And because of that, and, you know, these are the classic Buddhist descriptions, but they just line up with my experience of that nothing is quite reliable or, or tangible because everything is impermanent, including the self, including the I, me, mind kind of ego structure that wants to take everything personal. But in meditation, it's so obvious that the mind has a mind of its own is not obeying, you know, like sit down to meditate and tell your mind to shut up. <laughs> and your mind says, no, you shut up. <laughs> and you know, it helped me so much see like, oh, this isn't personal. My mind is not self. This body is not self. They're just yeah. impermanent processes being known by consciousness, being met with mindful awareness. And so the I on the relative level is just a kind of agreed upon way to communicate without having to believe, you know, without getting creepy and starting to talk about ourselves in the third person. <laughs> it makes sense though when some people do that sometimes. <laughs> I you say I am, you know, feeling this or that rather than one is having an emotion, do you know? Like, <laughs> uh, Noah is sad. Yeah. So starting to just see through it and, and, and not take it so personal and developing that discernment of what thoughts and feelings are wise and trustworthy and what thoughts and feelings are confused and, you know, not so trustworthy and making intentional choices based in that wisdom rather than just always believing that uh, it's also personal and that I am my thoughts and feelings and sensations. Yes. In other words, that there's something that's aware, and I use the word some like thing loosely, something that's aware of the thoughts of I who is wanting this or not wanting that or, you know, telling the mind to shut up. You know, B B Buddhism teaches us that there is not a self that is the owner of all of this. Mm. But some of my teachers, 
Ajahn Chah, Ajahn, you know, uh, Thai forest tradition. Ajahn Chah used to say, be, if, you know, be the one who knows, right? And kind of an identification with the awareness or the consciousness that knows the impermanent, impersonal, unsatisfactory nature of all things, you know. Mm-hmm. See through that. The, and, and the one who knows is Buddha, the awakened, mm-hmm. seeing clearly, knowing the true nature of things. Mm-hmm. My sense is that that's as close, you know, with our language, like kind of it's as close as we can get to explaining this process. But that in some ways, it feels to me like it's just the mind knowing itself rather than consciousness as this separate identity that knows the mind as part of the mind being meta-awareness of itself. Mm, mm. Yeah, and the mind not being defined as thoughts, not being defined as separate things, processes that are being observed by a separate mind, like it's a, a knowing that is pervasive and infused in what we might call the separate things, the flow of phenomena, at the same time as being aware of that. And that being the only thing, not even a thing, that doesn't change, really, that doesn't need satisfying. uh, The the term in in early Buddhism is citta. Are you familiar with the term citta? Which is so nice, citta, because it translates as the heart-mind. So it's not just our intellectual, psychological brain. It is our whole being that is both emotional and intellectual wisdom. It's an embodied knowing of what is. It includes the heart, heartfulness. And I, li- I like that because that's what it feels like. It doesn't feel like I'm my watching from my the watchtower of awareness in my brain. It feels like it's the whole body knowing reality. Yeah, and particularly, particularly in the aspect that the heart we can say a heart experience of love, because love is one and the same as that knowing in a sense and whole body reflection. It feels like the more we clear away the clinging, the reactive tendencies to the craving mind-bodies process, the more we stop obeying, rebel, you know, that what remains is a loving heart, what remains is a compassionate heart. What I talk about recovery, recovering something that's always been here. Or maybe we shouldn't even call it recovery, we should call it uncovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's un- uncovering this yes. loving heart, like that, you know, that's been wounded and has all of our scars and has all of our losses and but that it it's it's untouched and this it feels it resonates and also this is the buddha's teaching he said when i got free from the suffering of greed and hatred and delusion all that remains loving kindness and compassion appreciative joy and equanimity naturally radiating in all directions to all living beings and it's like oh yeah i want that that's what i'm going for that's what i'm un- trying to uncover and getting some tastes of along the way. And and I guess we could kind of poetically describe that in another way as as freedom in the sense that there is no craving there. There's nothing to be satisfied. There's nothing lacking there. There, Nothing can be taken away. So real freedom. Agree and or but or and. Even the fully awakened Buddha said, I'm free and I love everyone. I have compassion for everyone. He said, and my mind continues to crave. I no longer am identified with it as self. I don't obey it. But Mara, you know the character Mara in Buddhism? Mara is this character that the Buddha is sort of battling with. 
and it's his own mind on the verge of enlightenment. He's sitting there under the Bodhi tree and he's practicing his mindfulness. And he says, I was attacked by Mara and it was lust. I was attacked by Mara and it was hatred. I was attacked by Mara and it was doubt. And see, right, those mind states of craving and aversion and self-centered doubt, fear. And then I, 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 I kicked Mara's ass. <laughs> <laughs> with compassion, with wisdom, yeah, yeah. with yeah. non-identification. I didn't take any of that shit yeah. personal, and I was free. Yes. But then for the rest of his life of freedom with this open, loving heart, he said, Mara keeps coming back. I'm free, and now every time Mara returns, I say, I see you, Mara. I see that, oh, that's just a craving in the mind. That's just the mind saying like, ooh, that beer does look kind of good. <laughs> I see that, that's just a thought. Yeah. Right? Oh, I remember how yeah. cocaine smells. <laughs> that's just a thought. That's just Mara uh, arising and passing through the mind with the open heart. And the reason I, from my perspective, you may have a different one, I feel like that's an important clarification because I feel like so often people think that they're going to get to a place where they no longer have afflictive emotions. That if I'm really loving all of the time, I'll no longer experience fear or craving or aversion or rather than that's just part of the human condition too. It's going to come and we can meet it with love. We can meet it with wisdom, but don't be so surprised when your mind gives you bad advice. What minds do. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Particularly in this extreme emotion. Yes. Yeah. When uh, you know, it's really strong fight or flight occurs. And it's kind of a humility in what you're saying there because I guess what I'm hearing is that you can't get too, you know, self-assured <laughs> because that in itself you know, is is falling, you know, really getting identified again with, you know, me being beyond that. And then and that's a contradiction in terms. And it, I feel like it sets people up for either feeling like a failure. I haven't been able to get rid of my nervous system. <laughs> 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 or, or becoming a fraud and yes. pretending. Yeah. Yeah. Like they don't experience difficult emotions and that it's just all love and light all of the time. Yeah, I really hear that, that, you know, we, we need to be mindful and humble in, and not lose sight of what's happening right now in our own mind, in our own emotions, not miss the truth of it. You know, in, in Refuge, I... I say, you know, okay, so here we are and we're going to recover. The, you know, what I want to teach you is I want to teach you how to be uncomfortable. Learn how to sit here and have a loud mind and difficult emotions and an achy back as you meditate. And it, the better you get at being uncomfortable, the more success you'll have. And it's a hard sell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the opposite of, uh, you know, going for you know, extreme pleasure. Totally instantly. counter to our instinctual drive towards pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Against yeah. dream, right? This is the, the Buddha said, hey, you want to get free? Go against your instinctual drives for craving and aversion and learn to be here. Learn to be present and see clearly what's happening. And you will learn to respond appropriately, wisely, but it's totally counter to our survival instinct and our craving mm, mm, tendency. Mm, yeah. That having been said, pleasure's fine if we can enjoy it when it's appropriate and without so much attachment, right? Like also this other confusion around, oh, well, I have to be such a renunciate that I can't masturbate anymore or eat ice cream or whatever it is. And like, no, you can do that mindfully too. Yeah. I guess if it, it depends if it's, you know, just again – that cycle of craving and satisfaction or not? Well, and then what's the difference? And you're interviewing me, but I, I like to get your perspective on the difference between desire and craving. I actually think 
in my world, de- wanting, desire, craving kind of is all about something that's not here that I want to be here. So there's this preoccupation with an imagined state that isn't present and I'm having this disturbance about that that I'm not letting go of and nothing and, and then you know and I, I I'm not going to be okay until this imagined state is what I'm experiencing so so I kind of see them all as the same thing and I think it's different from that dynamic I think is different from where let's say the feeling of love in the very moment of the feeling of love and joy and peace is an innate pleasure of that. And you could say there's this infinitely momentary desire, which is almost, I mean, I'm making this up like a linear thing, but I don't think it is. I think it's instantaneous desire, satisfaction and reality at the same time. That's the only way I can understand desire different from the the wanting model, you know. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I'm curious to what you think. Well, it does. And I ask because, you know, the, the Buddhist model is craving causes suffering. And the end of suffering is the end of craving. But I can never quite get my mind around, like, is it really possible for humans to not want not have, you know, like, especially like our basic, you know, like I, I want food and water and, uh, and I want connection with other people, loving relationships. I'm like, all of those feel like healthy desires, right? Yeah. yeah. It's different than I want to snort cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Well, the way I see, why I see wanting food, taking that example, or is, is that there's a sensation. And so we, so on on that level, there's a sensation. So the whole machinery of desire can can kick into gear, and then we feel su- you know suffering and that that's not being here right now. Or we can continue to feel the sensation and go and get a drink of water and enjoy walking to get the drink of water and having that drink of water without the machinery of craving kicking in and on the way. That's the distinction that I want to make for people is that desire is as a, a wanting that you can actually not suffer about. You want it, but a little bit take it or leave it. You're not postponing your happiness. You're not suffering about having mm. to have it. I want dinner, right? I want I want a loving relationship. I want many healthy things. Craving is the extreme desire, which says, I have to have it. I can't be happy until I get it. And so I feel like it's important because it's in the Buddhist model anyways, when we're saying we can end craving, we can end that extreme identification with and belief in and repetitive satisfying of cravings, but we're not going to get rid of the healthy desires. Yeah. Maybe it's a matter of distinction in the sense that what we're calling the healthy desires is in a sense a natural phenomena, you know, whether it be a physical phenomena like feeling of thirst or uh, let's say an emotional phenomena of I really miss that person, I'd love to be with them right now. So let's take that one as an example. So I really miss that person. I really want to be with them, but they're, they're not here and I can't go to them right now. So you could the machinery of desire could kick into gear and start really going into suffering about, oh, no, they're not here and, and this is really bad and, I, I, you know, and you just all of that just keeps on repeating. Or, and so that would be the desire, I mean, sorry, the, the craving part, Or it could be recognising that that's one possibility of reacting and the other possibility is is actually feeling that um, love for that person right now and enjoying that as it is and realising that actually they are here to the degree that I'm experiencing this love for them. 
and I don't find, even though within that, obviously there's a mental thought that I'd like them to be here, but it's no longer, there's no attachment to that, you know, and, and there's no craving in the sense that I'm constantly in the moment experiencing the love for that person. You know what I mean? The machinery of craving is not participated in. Yeah, I like that. I just feel like it's so important for us to provide realistic ideals and ideas about what people can expect as they go deep into the investigation of this human process, this human condition. And my experience, you know, the last 30-something years is that craving has diminished, but desire is still very much present. I, I want a lot of things and experiences and but I'm pretty take it or leave it most of the time. And it's not like it used to be where I thought I had to have it. And I would suffer about not having it. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that example about um missing someone and this mm. mindful ability to be like, oh I miss them and it's uh, sadness and it's uh, and actually there's a sweetness to that. And what you're saying of like this loving what what a feeling to feel so connected or attached to somebody that I miss them and and I can move to this myself rather than you know even if it is a bit unpleasant that that's okay too. There's a sweetness in that unpleasantness. Yeah, it's kind of going into the the actual reality of what's present deep more deeply seems to relieve the mind's you know whatever the the craving mechanism is that that we get caught up in, which is actually a delusion in a way. It's kind of like this part imaginary yearning that our awareness gets kind of trapped into like this, you know, like, you know, those fairy tales where they get trapped in the labyrinth and they can't get out and then and then start going mad or something? I don't see how people do it without mindfulness, without, you know, without some kind of investigative self-awareness and whether that's, Buddhist yeah. mindfulness or some other kind of inquiry in, in introspection because uh, yeah. the mind is so reactive, the untrained yes. mind. Yes. But with some meditative training, then it becomes it becomes less reactive. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes too, I'm sure that you've experienced this where sometimes you have such a powerful feeling of love that comes over you that it really, it's like takes over the, the thinking mind almost and, and, and all those other reactions and, and it kind of, and it becomes the dominant reality, which is, can only ever be present. And sometimes that, you know, awareness is one and the same as that, but it does, the thinking mind and the, the thinking self can't wrap itself around that even though there's a knowing that that is one and the same as the as me kind of thing <laughs> but, but not that not the thinking me and a, that experience is such a helpful experience be, you know absolutely but i also think that like it takes a maturity a psychological and an emotional maturity to understand what that experience of love is and that very mm. often people mistake it for an erotic feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, Oh, well, I'm supposed to be having sex with somebody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. I'm having this experience of love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a friend who had this experience early on in, in their meditation practice. And they said, you know, and I had this big experience and it was all of this love and I didn't know what else to do. So I just masturbated. <laughs> 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 yeah. I know what you mean there because uh, I was once at this, it was kind of a, a well-being kind of conference or something and there were these women from Brahma Kamaris there and they were, there was a couple of them, they were dressed up as angels and they were just walking around and they'd walk up to someone and not say anything and then then hand them a card, right? And I and you know, I could see this happening, but I was busy doing what I was doing. Anyway, one of them at the end came up to me and 
And when they came up and looked at me, I was just flooded with this feeling of love, which, and then they handed me the card. And I was, I immediately went, this is a, there's some magical con- connection with this singular individual person. And I took it into that sexual realm in my own head. And then I went to try and find that person, right? And they'd, dis- they'd scooted off because they probably knew that men can take it the wrong way. What they were sharing was a divine love. And very that was many years ago. I, I took that to completely the wrong way. I know exact, exactly what you mean by that because, you know, I knew nothing different. And you're a, you're a therapist? Trained as an acupuncturist. I worked as an acupuncturist, but that's kind of morphed into helping people you know, stop smoking. And um, and now um, I'm kind of extending that toolkit into offering that to people to deal with any kind of craving. So that's where the addiction to freedom comes in. And I haven't actually created that that course yet. I'm just enjoying. I'm enjoying these kind of conversations actually. So so. I was just when, thinking about that sort of erotic transference that's so oh, yeah. just common with a client in an acupuncture practice or a therapist yeah. or a dharma teacher or or you know of kind of like oh wow you're making me experience love we should sleep together and it's like no, no this isn't about at all like this is about just yeah. experiencing love yes yes yeah that's right and you're right it's uh it takes a maturity in the understanding of love to to discern the difference yeah well I feel I'm just kind of mindful of the time that we've spoken here and I feel like we should bring the conversation to a close. I've, I, to be honest, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. So um, have I. I. It's been great. It's been great and I, you know, I always appreciate an opportunity to connect with a, you know, practitioner, somebody who's doing the, the investigation and always appreciate the opportunity to, Talk about refuge recovery, which is really, I feel so passionate about this form of recovering from, and I think I said it, but all forms of addictions. You know, we have the substance abuse people, we have the process addiction, and we all meet together and say, craving is craving, suffering is suffering. And then there are, you know, women's meetings and uh, food, you know, people who are suffering from food addiction, they have their own meetings and a GLBTQI, queer, gay, gay, lesbian meetings, where and people and and most of them are online. So wherever you're tuning in from, you can find this at at our recovery website. And so I'm just really love getting the opportunity to to spread that message. Yeah, and I I love the opportunity to to help to spread that as well. So what we're going to do is we'll put for anyone listening, we'll put the details of all of how you can connect with uh, Refuge Recovery and other links to Noah's resources, website and and books and things. We'll put those in the show notes. And I, I think with that, I'll I'll say uh, thank you so much, Noah, and um, I hope to meet again. <laughs> <laughs>